Good morning, Mark. How are you doing? <laughs> Good morning, John. I'm doing great. How about you? I'm excellent, and I'm happy about this discussion. So this continues our hyper-ambitious, audacious journey into the depths of John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Last week we gave a little witness to his witness, his biography. I have, I think, 11 pages left in, Witness to Hope. Um, if you, you have it's 800 pages? 878. When you have uh, a biography written about you, and it's about 900 pages, and it doesn't include the last five years of your life, and it feels like a novel thriller <laughs> and is like a spiritually profound piece, you're a pretty darn profound witness. Um, so, uh, John Paul II's incredible. So last episode, we tried to just pay a little bit of tribute to him and uh, orient the listener to his life because, as we said last time, his his writings and his life uh, together pay an integrated witness to Jesus Christ. So knowing him, the man, helps understand his, his writings more. But he describes uh, Theology of the Body, which is the working title for those first 133, I think, Wednesday audiences that he gave as Pope. Uh, he summarized them as an adequate anthropology, an adequate understanding of the human person. Which begs the question, well, if an adequate understanding of the human person is needed, why do we apparently have an inadequate mm. understanding of ourselves? So what I wanted to look into today is, uh, do we have an inadequate understandings, understanding of ourselves? And if so, why? Why do we have that? Are there philosophical roots to this, cultural roots to this? Did it start in the 1960s? Did it start much earlier? Are these problems distinctively modern? Okay, so as Christians, we believe that the fall happened before uh, the hippie revolution. Like, so in one sense, not, as the author of Ecclesiastes says, nothing is new under the sun. Sin is sin. But we do change at the same time. Um, so I just want to look at those forces. And one of the things I want to look at, Mark, is you uh, use a word often that's very important to um, the Christian tradition of thought. It's very important and understand philosophy. And that's a word, dualism. Mm. So unless you want to go even farther back, I want to begin with dualism. And one more thing to kind of wrap the bow on this. Um, I'm sorry for this long introduction, but... Christopher West, who I highly recommend as, I think, a faithful interpreter and promulgator of um, Pope John Paul II's Theology of the Body, he teaches in his institute that Theology of the Body sets out to answer two questions. Number one, what is a human being? And number two, how do I find true happiness? We all want to be happy. In order to be happy, we have to understand who we are. If I look for happiness in only one area of my life because I understand myself in a one-dimensional thing. So if I think that I as a person am purely an economic unit of society, that's, that's my lens for myself. I equate happiness with money. Uh, think of the country song, you can't buy happiness, but I can buy a truck. All right, well, how happy am I when I'm not in the truck? So 
my point here is a cheesy illustration is um, if we want an integrated happiness, an abundant happiness, the abundant life that Jesus Christ offers for us, that can't be a happiness for simply one area of my life. It has to be a, a happiness that gives meaning to all the dimensions of who I am as a human person. So if I have an inadequate understanding of who I am, then I've got maybe a compartment of happiness, but I don't have holistic happiness. So now as I pass it off to you, we have, we have a partial perspective of who we are as persons in the modern world. How do we know that? Where did this sort of compartmentalization of the person begin? Uh, well, like I said, it, it didn't happen just in the 1960s. So a really brief sketch of an overview. Mm -hmm. uh, we got to go back to the, the birth of the modern world, which we'll call it about 1500. And, and this is based on the work of a Canadian philosopher and Catholic Charles Taylor. Um, we had talked earlier about what makes a sacramental worldview. First of all, let's start there. And so a sacramental worldview or Taylor, he says, pre-modern world he calls it it's an enchanted world meaning the the world is one united living cosmos mm -hmm. it's created by god and it's imbued with the very presence of god so you have a spiritual aspect to the world you have a physical material aspect but they're not over against each other they're one united cosmos and pre previous to say 1500 taylor argues that Nobody was really an atheist because we understood that the world was filled with, like we see in the biblical world, angels and demons and spirits, and there was this physical reality in which we lived, but we were intimately connected with a spiritual, immaterial reality that sort of interpenetrated and it, it worked together. You didn't have the physical, and then over there or out there was the material or the or the spiritual. And so nobody was an atheist because you realize that there really were good forces, evil forces, and the evil forces wanted to do you harm. The good forces were working on behalf of God to uh, keep you alive and make life good. And so nobody was an atheist because if you didn't if you weren't on God's side, you knew that there was a rea a reality that was a part of this reality, this united cosmos that could be very harmful for you or harmful to you. So when Taylor talks about disenchantment or what, what you're pointing to is this, how did we come to the place where we separated the two and we said either there is no enchanted world anymore, there is no spiritual realities with those kinds of uh, malevolent beings, uh, or it, 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 just, it, it just doesn't really affect us in any way mm -hmm. and when what happened was really really quickly he says at about the 1500s you begin to have a split between theology and philosophy mm -hmm. philosophy and theology always worked together in the middle ages the philosophy was called the handmaid of theology it worked together it supported theology you didn't do theology without doing philosophy yeah but in the 1500s he calls it the, the age of reform that everything in society is reforming we are rethinking economics and politics and medicine and technology and science and education and the arts and we're rethinking everything. Well, what that does is it causes a split between theology and philosophy. And theology and philosophy 
both basically try and answer the same questions of life. Yep. What does it mean to be human? What's a good life? What's a life worth living? What is good? What's bad? Etc. And when the split between theology and philosophy happens, you have a whole bunch of philosophers and, and guys who call them the Enlightenment or the scientific revolution or scientific progress, and they begin to try and answer the questions of life minus God. Yep. And so that creates that first dualism that we can begin to live life. We can find all of those answers to what makes a good life, what defines a good person, but we can answer them divorced from God. And so now you're beginning the roots of this split between the spiritual and the physical, which is going to lead to a split between mind and body. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> And right up until about the 1700s, Taylor calls it the move to deism. Uh, so in the 1500s, 1600s, and the early 1700s, it, it's not that this philosophical shift or this enlightenment shift threatened the existence of God. They all believed in God, but the idea of God changed from the creator who created this living cosmos and his presence is is just imbued in the in creation and he fills everything of psalm 139 i can go into the highest heavens or you are there and go to the depths of the sea you're there uh, not an an animism or a pantheism but just the presence of god everywhere and, yeah. and you could you could connect with god in in many many ways um that the the image is god becomes a clockmaker and once newton comes along and says hey gravity laws of create uh, laws of the world that the, the picture of the world becomes, it's a mechanized creation. Mm -hmm. It's not a living cosmos. It's a mechanized creation. Uh, it, it just, it's like a clock. It's, it, mm -hmm. it works according to principles and, and mechanisms that are inherent in it. So God, the creator, creates this world. He creates this watch or this clock. He winds it up and he lets it go. Mm -hmm. So the presence of God now is kind of removed he, he's sort of out there he's overseeing things kind of sorta but he's not filling the, the, this earth with with a presence and then the second thing that that does is it becomes it, it mechanizes human beings mm -hmm. so we're no longer in the image of God filled with a, a, a nature that can connect with him we're no longer like Aquinas calls us um, humanity is the the um, horizon between heaven and earth we're created in such a way that we're fitted in our very nature to be able to live in the spiritual and the physical united in this one living cosmos so the world becomes mechanized and human beings become mechanized we, we become just objects that you can tinker with mm -hmm. and this going yeah, say this goes back to 1500s late 1500s early 1600s with Descartes who's already beginning to say you know the body doesn't really matter you, you are a thinking being. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's the roots of it. So, I mean, you look at today, some of the things we, what you're going to talk about in terms of how we see ourselves dualistic, but, you know, the whole trans movement, the whole abortion, it's all, it all goes back to, like you said, one part of us is what defines us. Either it's our mind or it's our sexuality or it's, 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 we pick one thing to define us. We separate it over against something else. And it might be a spirit-body dualism. It might be a mind-body dualism. It might be a uh, us-to-the-world dualism. There's all mm -hmm. ways that this manifests. But the basic idea is 
we're not holistic anymore. And one, like it's like you said, once you highlight one aspect of who we are, you put that in a world that is fractured, then people can begin to isolate and and highlight one aspect of their create their humanity, and it just goes in a multitude of directions. Very good. So uh, I've got a question to clarify. So if I heard you right, Mark, it sounds like if uh, at the end of the Middle Ages you have theology, which seeks to answer the big questions from a starting point of faith. And and a starting point of God. God, Yeah. yeah. And then you have philosophy, which also seeks to answer the big questions from a starting point of reason. And then you have the natural sciences, which want to understand the world. What it sounds to me is like at the beginning of the Enlightenment, each of those three disciplines became autonomous from the other. Yeah. So it's not that like Isaac Newton was not an atheist. No. Um, Philosophers were not atheists. Theologians were mostly not irrational. Mm -hmm. But it's almost as if they kind of bracketed and compartmentalized their departments of knowledge into self-contained and uh, so my training is not as a philosopher I'm a theologian who has wanted to understand philosophy because I saw that the union of philosophy and theology did not begin in the middle ages it goes much farther Mm -hmm. back to the beginning of Christianity you see the apostle Paul at Athens um making use of philosophy in order to be an evangelist if you read the gospel of john john is using terms in the prologue that would resonate with platonists so um christians don't see philosophy as a detraction from the gospel message they see it as an earnest search for truth well if we understand it you you talk to some of an average lay person and they will say, well, no, philosophy is just, it, it's over here, it's pagan, it's secular, it has nothing to do with, it's, it's Tertullian, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Uh, and so there are some people who say, well, no, it, it's actually not a good fit. Philosophy is what Aristotle does, what Plato, yeah. it's what pagans do. We do theology. Uh, but, and, and to your point, yeah, so even all of these guys, that's why they, I think it's, it's important to understand that they were deists. Yeah. They, under, they believe, still believed in God. So this whole philosophical revolution it doesn't threaten the existence of god it threatens the existence of the enchanted world yeah because what they began to think was okay well maybe this whole enchanted world with angels and demons and you know prayer that works and eucharist and candles and you know yeah. uh, descartes pro- uh, initial project he was a catholic philosopher he was a catholic mathematician and his, his problem was he looked at some, some of Catholic theology. He looked at the miraculous things of Catholic theology. Uh-huh. Resurrections and virgin births and Eucharist and real presence. He said, I'm just not sure I can buy that anymore. Mm-hmm. And so his project was, what can we absolutely know for sure? And then that led him to, the only thing you can know for sure is that you're a thinking being. Everything else, your body, you know, you, for all you know, you, might, you, you could be living in the matrix, would be a modern way to summarize Descartes. The only thing you can know for sure, for sure, for sure, is that I am a thinking being. What you're thinking could be totally wrong, but the fact that you are a, the fact that I'm thinking tells myself that I do exist. But this desk doesn't necessarily exist. We might not really exist. This all might be the matrix. 
Yeah. You might have a demon on your shoulder, you know, feeding you information. Later on in the 19, in 1970s, there was a German guy. Uh, he talks about the brain in a vat. You know, maybe them that all you know, for all you know, for sure, you know, you might be just a brain in this liquid vat and you have some scientist feeding you electrical and that's it. That's yeah. You don't know that for sure. Yeah. So Bishop Barron points out that the beginning of the enlightenment, which is not entirely positive or entirely negative, it's just a historical event that we have to reckon with critically. Um, he points out the enlightenment does have, um, an obsession with certainty which he describes as neurotic um, I think it's some it, it can be helpful to think about philosophical movements and if if we turn this philosophical movement into a person and put them before a counselor would they be classified as healthy or not and um, and he pointed out that the whole uh, Cartesian Rene Descartes his desire for absolute certainty um, it's it's almost like obsessive compulsive. There's there's something a little bit off kilter on it. Um, John Henry Newman, I think is he's so important as a Catholic theologian that he kind of anticipates Charles Taylor because he looks at how modernity and what we now call late modernity or post modernity has changed the um, what he calls the like the the environment of belief. And that the way forward is not certainty, but how we know what we know by converging probabilities. So we don't know anything through logical syllogisms alone. And we, well, we know few things through logical syllogism. Let me say that. And we know few things through sensory perception alone. But we know the majority of our life through converging probabilities. And he gives a lot of practical data examples of this. Um, one more thing, uh, when you talked about the splitting of faith and reason, um, I, I don't know if I'm going to be accused of just picking on Luther, but I had breakfast with a guy uh, who's really sharp, um, Protestant, curious about Catholicism, and we were talking about how like so few Christians understand just how novel Luther was. That he was novel, not just in his conclusions, but the assumptions he made were radically novel yeah. in the 1,500-year existence of Christianity. And I'm talking Orthodox and heretical thinkers alike. And one of the novelties about Luther, uh, I'm going to say this more mildly than Luther put it because I don't want to have to put the explicit uh, tag on our podcast. <laughs> but when he infamously says in a heresy, I mean in a sermon, well, there's a Freudian slip, he says in a sermon, quote, um, reason is the devil's whore when yeah. she appears throw crap in her face. Yeah. Freud would have a heyday with that. But um, <laughs> come back to John Paul II. I mean, one of his late encyclicals is titled Fides et Ratio, Faith and Reason. Faith and reason are the two wings on which the human ascends to God. This is the classical Catholic position. Faith and reason are the two yeah. wings on which the soul ascends to God. You disassociate faith from reason, and you either end up with fideism, which is either superstition or fundamentalism. I have verses from the Bible. Don't question, just do. Okay, yeah. I come from the South. You get people uh, 
the end of this trajectory are people like handling snakes and all sorts of bad things that you can look up all sorts of podcasts about. Uh, this sort of authoritarian thing is it's met its reckoning. Um, but the other way you can go from that is this sort of cold rationalism that's not open to faith. C.S. Lewis describes himself in Surprised by Joy what the psychological experiences of seeing these two and the two not meeting. He says, everything my mind believed in was logical but cold and lifeless. Everything my heart longed for was beautiful but fantastic. And he describes being basically feeling torn between uh, the, the beauty of ancient myth and song and poetry and the sort of um, very logically rigorous critical thinking and that not being able to reconcile the two left him as a person feeling divided and he felt the choice that he could either be intelligent and cynical and unhappy or happy and probably hedonistic and irrational so neither of these options are a path towards uh, really satisfying joy. Well, and, and there, I think you've nailed the, the modern dilemma. Because after the Enlightenment, you get about halfway through the Enlightenment, and there's a response to that called romanticism. Uh-huh. And romanticism was the exact opposite. People got tired and weary of the, the cold, calculated world that was losing its beauty and its emotion. And so, and romanticism really flowers and really flourishes in the arts and sex. And it becomes the new meaningful pursuit, it becomes a religious pursuit, really, where the individual is supreme. Your feelings, your, your, your desires, your loves, your inclinations are more important than any rationality. You've got to go with your heart. You Be defined by your... Inc- which you can see romanticism today. Like Be defined by your impulses. You are who your impulses and your wants and your desires want to be. And you see a new move in art uh, where you know, they're starting to write novels that talk about illicit sexual relationships. And the, the romantic is the one yeah. who is going to go after the married woman. It's stupid. It's crazy. It's completely irrational. You're going to get your heart broken and you're going to destroy your own world. It doesn't matter. You, you, you're the romantic. It's, it's only right if you pursue those impulses. Yeah. So you have, by the end of the Enlightenment and, and on into modern day, you've got the engineer versus the artist. Yep. And that's exactly what you're talking about. You've got the people who you're being told on one hand that the world is this cold, calculated, reason-driven. If you can't prove it scientifically or empirically, don't believe it. And it's cold and calculating. And then you've got, at the same time, but I've got these pulses, these drives, these loves that I've got to live them out. And there's no reconciling them. Yeah. And so the, and I think everybody's individual struggle, some people more than others, but... The, pers- the, the modern person is divided between their engineer self and their romantic artistic self and there's no happiness, there's no resolution, there's no fulfillment in that because these two worlds have been, de- have been ripped apart as part of the dualism and you have to be either one or the other. Yeah, it's an age of divorces. It is. Like hemispheres of the brain, you got right brain, left brain, make your choice, head and heart, make your choice. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, so I think at the beginning of modernity, I think it'd be fair to say that we have three men that 
consciously reject what we could call the Aristotelian inheritance. You've got Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, the three founding fathers of philosophy. You've got three men who consciously reject the Aristotelian um, synthesis of Western thought. Luther rejects it all for a sort of existential alternative of faith. Descartes rejects it all uh, for a sense of certainty. Aristotle acknowledged that philosophy itself has to begin with a, uh, a first principle, a primary assumption, which is an act of faith. It can't be argued for, it's argued from. Descartes rejected this for certainty. And then you have uh, my great relative, Francis Bacon. And I feel like part of my life is a penance of trying to be Aragorn to his Isildur. <laughs> because he's really responsible for a lot of this. And he rejected Aristotle uh, for a sort of Machiavellian, even Nietzschean, will to power. Okay, So in case you don't know, Francis Bacon, who, yes, I belong to the same family, 500 years removed, he failed his exams on Aristotle. This made him bitter. What do all academics do when they can't understand something? Make something else up. PhD, pile it high and deep. What did Francis Bacon pile high and deep? Modern educational theory. That the purpose of the university was not to master the liberal arts so as to become wise and virtuous and contemplative. He basically turned the universities into more of a nationalistic STEM prototype. And he famously says that man's duty, man's, uh, I'm going to butcher this Latin because I'm a redneck, summum bonum, his uh, highest good, quote, is the conquest of nature. Now this is the real dividing line you can't go back from. If man's duty is to conquest, to conquer nature, okay, this is a radical 180 from how previous people have thought ethically about the highest good of man. Pagans and Christians alike thought the highest good of man is to be conformed to what is. Okay, remember the mod the motto of the devil is non serve him. I will not serve. Okay. <laughs> so I think there's almost something a little bit Luciferian in this. And as a relative of uh, Francis Bacon, who created modernity, <clears throat> and Nathaniel Bacon, who is responsible for genocide, uh, I feel like I can criticize them a little bit since I share their name. Um if you read the preface to uh, Theology of the Body, not written by John Paul II, but written by the translator into English, I'm going to butcher this once again, Michael Waldstein. He says that Theology of the Body is largely a response to the world that Descartes and Francis Bacon create. Uh, Descartes privileges the mind above the body, that my identity is located within the subjective world of my thoughts and values. My body is just some type of shell that carries around the true me. And then you have Bacon, who believes ultimately in the will to power more than some sort of will to love. And, um, and these ideas, they, they, they yield effects in the world. Uh, Francis Bacon's thought leads to industrial revolution, which I'm not going to be a hypocrite. I mean, I benefit from the industrial revolution. I didn't make my own clothes. I don't live off only yeah. what I grow in my backyard. Okay, so um, 
it's not that we just have to throw out everything Descartes and Bacon are responsible for, but we need to recognize what are some downsides to this. Did the Enlightenment era bring a huge flourishing of the natural sciences? Yes. Okay, well, let's look. But, but what did not flourish with it at the same speed? Uh, feminists have noted... Okay, I'm going to back up. I'm saying something real weird, so let me preface this. Theology of the body is about human sexuality. When Pope Paul VI wrote Humana Vitae on human life, and he defended the Christian position from the foundation of Christianity that artificial contraception is contrary to um, the dignity of a husband and wife. Almost everyone disagreed with him. Well, they laughed at him. They yeah. mocked mercilessly. The one group that agreed with him is not what people think of when they think of Catholic Pope. It was the ardent feminists. And here's what they recognized. What this sort of conquest of nature mentality did to Mother Earth in the Industrial Revolution, the sexual revolution was threatening to do to Mother Woman. Okay? So, um, it's not that science is bad, but like we said at the beginning, the things have to be reintegrated. We cannot reduce a human to a biological phenomenon, although humans are biological. We can't deny that reality, too. We're a psychosomatic body-soul union. So, uh, we're known through a variety of methods. Um, when we think about these issues, we can't rely to, quote, a partial perspective. So what is theology of the body? In short, theology of the body, Pope John Paul II, when he's Carol Wojtyla, doing his doctoral dissertation in Rome as a young bishop, um, he's working from a few sources. Number one, he is loyal to the Aristotelian inheritance, Thomas Aquinas, the great, uh, the, what, we call I can't say it in French but the touchstone doctor um, kind of the great synthesizer of theology he's loyal to that inheritance um, he also is deeply inspired by St. John of the Cross who like Luther has a huge emphasis on faith but unlike Luther he does not unravel that from Aquinas but John Paul II also realizes that the enlightenment cannot go back in in the tube. The toothpaste is not going back in the tube. We can't just pretend to be medieval people or else we're just it's fideism, it's superstition we can't go back. The conditions of belief have changed. Well there is a type of philosophy known as phenomenology um, that was really coming to its own as he was doing his doctoral work and he thought if if we as humans reflect honestly on our subjective experience through the body in harmony with central Bible texts, central words of Christ, can we rediscover through our subjectivity, our bodies, our desires, our values, can we rediscover a touchstone with what Christians in particular and oftentimes people in general have held as objective truths. Yeah, and I think he was, again, a product of his time. So as you see the 20th century unfold, 
what we because of this you're now 400 years 1900s 400 years after or in the in this progress of what started in the enlightenment what we did to each other in the 20th century there was more brutality more war more like you said uh, uh, last broadcast the word genocide was invented because of how humanity had treated himself had treated each other so the question did modernity fail i think we'd have to absolutely because what they wanted what these enlightenment philosophers wanted was can we answer the big questions of life what does it mean to be human? What is a good life? What is ethical? What is moral? How do we create a world that is just and fair and everybody gets, you know, uh, it, it's good for everybody? But how do we do that divorced from God? Was doomed to fail, for one thing. But we saw that all these things, like you said, the, the technical revolution, the industrial revolution, we, uh, goods and services became cheap and efficient and uh, more people had more stuff than ever. And by the time you get to World War One, early 1900s, we've used all of that technology to almost obliterate ourselves. Yeah. And then you've got World War Two, where we do it again on a global scale. Yeah. And so the the idea that this dualism. So you're right. No, we can't go back to the enchanted world. We can't go back because I don't think, you know, a, a, a several billion Westerners will go back to that. But that doesn't mean that that world doesn't exist. Yeah. It doesn't mean that the enchanted world of the world of the Bible, that just because modernism said, well, we don't believe in transcendence. We don't believe, we're going to follow you. It doesn't matter what you believe. Yeah. The world of the Bible is still, there was a God who created it, who created it good. And the, there, there is a living cosmos that is filled with his presence. And as much as modern thinking and modern philosophy tries to disconnect from it, I think that's where the tension is for most people, is there's that sense. Uh, Taylor talks about the great book by a British guy by the name of Julian Barnes um, and he's used an example of, of modern thinking there's this wrestling with but what if mm-hmm. and I think that that is the modern problem you've got the, you've got the, the engineer versus the artist and I think everybody every individual has somewhat of that engineer versus artist within themselves yeah. and Taylor uses the word haunted we are haunted by the prospect that because the God story isn't going to go away yeah. You, you are an atheist. Even an atheist, it's an atheist. It's a non-theist. Even an yeah. atheist has to talk in terms of the God category yeah. or God thought. So as much as people say, well, I'm an, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. Okay, but you still understand. You, you have not removed the concept of God from your thinking. And people yeah. are haunted by this prospect that... Something's wrong with the way I'm living. I'm either too much engineer, I'm too much artist. I can't, I'm not, I'm not finding, like you said, happiness. I'm not finding a fulfilling life. I'm, I'm my own fractured, uh, this, this dissected person that I can't get my own unified life back together. And I just have no answers because you've got a world that's telling you, well, you know what, that whole transcendence thing, that guy, it's for grandma and little kids, you know. Be a man, and this was this was Kant that if you cannot solve all the world's problems, you cannot live by rationality alone. You're immature. Humanity is immature yeah. as long as we default to these myths and to religion. And so you've got a world out there that it. Why John Paul is so important today because it's it's reuniting the human person. Like you said, if you were going to find happiness and a real. Augustinian Thomist way where 
we're just satisfied with life. We're satisfied with who we are as people and the kind of life we live. It has to include relationship with God and it has to include life yep. in body, soul, spirit, mind, will, and emotions. Amen. I think um, you use the word um, uh, a reunification or a reintegration, Mark. Uh, and I think also reconciliation. Like this is, I think that these are if we try to summarize what can't be summarized in theology of the body, I, I think that's the project. Yeah. And if we're made in the image and likeness of God and men and women, then reconciliation to ourselves, to um, the mystery of our being, of our personhood, and reconciliation to the mystery of God are, of course, two sides of the same coin, as well as reconciliation to other persons. Yeah. Like Those things can't be held separately.